0: Tonight. As you know, my custom is to just preach through the Bible verse by verse, maybe even word by word. Last week we finished, what, fourteen messages on the usual book of Zechariah. And next Sunday night will be our Bible conference. So I said, Well, what can I do? Just one off, and we had at least one request for an informal question and answer time. It's been a long time since we did that. Um, so start thinking of some questions you can ask me. Now, this is not stump the preacher or someone called it stump the chump. Uh, don't know how many of you remember, but, oh, 20 years or so ago, I wrote a column for the newspaper called the Bible says, and I would answer a question every Saturday. um, Uh, How old is the earth? Is Jesus the only way to heaven? Things like that. Also, out in the lobby, we have a handout called the Bible Quiz, asking you questions about the Bible. Uh, Here's an easy one. Who wrote the books of Moses? (laughs) It's like who's buried in Grant's tomb. But as a pastor, I've had people from all sorts of backgrounds ask good questions, unusual questions, Uh, We used to have a teenager here, and every Sunday for about three weeks, he'd be the first one to meet me after the meeting and always had a good question. What does the Bible say about this? Uh, Did God really do this? I get phone calls, emails, letters, and even visits from people asking big questions, sometimes practical, like, uh, Can God help me in this problem? And I direct them to what the Bible says. You know that I have this ministry to prison inmates from all over the country. And they usually ask good questions. Um, uh, What what do you say to a Muslim? How do you tell him about Jesus? Those sort of questions. On Christian radio, there are several phone-in broadcasts. There used to be one called the Bible Answer Man where they'd ask questions. So if you listen to Jay Vernon McGee, and he's been dead for 30 years, but they still broadcast him, and on Saturdays it's answering questions that people have sent him. And then at our conference on Sunday, Saturday night, we have questions and answers for the people here at the conference. Now, we're talking about legitimate questions. I'm not going to talk about the objections that unbelievers have, like, how do you know there's a God? How do you know there's life after death? If you want to ask those, go right ahead. So you think of questions, and I'll try to answer them from the Bible. Now, if we don't get sufficient questions, I have a list of questions that people have asked me. Some unusual, other ones you may wonder about. So that's our informal question and answer time tonight. So, okay, who wants to go first? Over here, Logan. Okay, I'll repeat the questions because it is being uh, recorded. What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 tells us. He says, I remind you of the gospel I preached to you. That's verse 1. That you believed and were saved. So it calls for faith. The gospel is basically this. Who is Jesus? What did he do? What is our response? The Bible says, Jesus Christ is God who became a man... And he never sinned, the only man that never sinned. And he came into the world to save us because we have sinned. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It also says after death there's judgment. And after judgment you either end up in eternal heaven or eternal hell. Jesus came so that we can go to heaven. What's blocking the way to heaven is our sins because we're guilty. So it says there in 1 Corinthians fifteen three five wonderful words. Christ died for our sins. The Bible says that's the only way we can be forgiven. The only way to heaven. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Why did he die? Well, to show the love of God. But also, because we're guilty, the Bible says God is angry with us. That's the wrath of God. Jesus suffered on the cross. He shed his blood... He suffered the wrath of God. He paid the penalty for us. And then, Easter Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. That's basically the gospel. So you think, he's God and man. He died and rose. What does he call on us to do? Repent of sin and believe in him and then we are saved. Good short answer. Good enough? Who's next? Michael. I've been asking, How, so how, I know how I answered I'm curious how you answer The question they asked me was why did God create man knowing that man was going to sin and fall away? Okay. Well, that's similar to what I have here. Um, number 18 Why did God allow sin? Uh, why does God do anything? Ultimately, for His glory, and that means to show His glory. God could show the glory of his holiness without sin. God could show the glory of his love without sin. He wanted to go a step further and show the glory of his grace by allowing sin so that he could forgive it. And that shows how wonderful his grace is. But also, he allowed sin and some people will not be saved and that will display the glory of his wrath. Does that kind of give you a feel for what we're talking about? Here's a similar one to that. Why does God allow tragedies, disasters, dying babies, birth defects? Why does he allow war? That's called the problem of evil. Not just why did God allow it to come in the first place, but what's his purpose in all this? He's going to set everything straight. Uh, Nobody gets away with sin, just like I tell these prison inmates. Nobody gets away with crime. Oh, you may not get caught in this life, but God's got your number. Why does God allow these? Again, sometimes God allows just a terrible tragedy to hit a family so that they will know just how merciful and kind God is. And I've also known people that suffer terrible diseases that are very painful. I remember visiting one in the hospital, and I thought he was going to be very bitter. He wasn't. He was weeping. He says, oh, Kurt, I'm in such pain. Jesus is so kind, I never knew it until I got this sick. This is one of the reasons, one of the reasons, he allows tragedies. But it'll be all be set straight one day because he's in control. Fair enough? Okay, who's next? I found that sometimes children ask the best questions. So, you children and older children? Matt, okay, there's an older children, okay. What do you got, Matt? What is the Biblical mandate for Bible counselors? Well, the Bible talks about the need for wisdom for solving dilemmas, problems, uh, making decisions. This morning I briefly said what some of the principles involved. The Bible also talks about some Christians being specially gifted with what's called the word of wisdom. In other words, word means it's something you speak when you need wisdom. It's just like if you need Legal advice, you go to the lawyer, you don't go to the bartender, you go to a lawyer that says, oh, that's a good question, I'll tell you what the law says, the precedents. here's my advice, Uh, $100 per hour, please. But he's wise, you go to a doctor for advice, uh, financial counselor, so I think there is a biblical basis for seeking out not just wise Christians, uh, pastors, but those that are specially gifted. And, in my opinion, they should not charge uh, the church that support them. Okay, who's next? Okay, Matt. Um, There's debate going on in some circles. Um, What is Christian nationalism? I don't know enough about that. I'll give you just a brief summary of what I know, and I... I don't know, maybe Logan, I think he's looked into that a little bit more. Christian nationalism, as I understand, it, is similar to what some would call right wing, but a lot of right wingers have nothing to do with Christianity. Some of them into neo-paganism. But um, Christian nationalism is like very patriotic, thinking God has a plan for America. Some would say a special plan for America, because we start off. By the pilgrims and people like that saying we're dedicating this to God. Other ones say we need to bring America back to God. We need to pray for revival. But my understanding is some go a little bit further than that. I don't know much beyond that. I do know about some of the old ones. You remember the moral majority. Uh, Some of us are old enough to remember Jerry Falwell. And they said, well, we need to pray for America and bring in biblical principles. Maybe make this a Christian nation. I think it's in that general area, but Logan, you've read something on this, haven't you? Talk to him afterwards. (laughs) That's what you call passing the buck. I really should look into this more. I think that a lot of it would be legitimate. We should pray for America, vote right according to biblical principles so that our elected and appointed officials would go to God's word for wisdom and righteousness. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but... Sin is a disgrace to any people. Uh, That sounds a little bit like America today. But things are getting worse. We should work and pray for... But that doesn't mean we can Christianize everybody or establish a church state like Israel had in the Old Testament. That's called a theocracy. And I think some people kind of want something like that. Okay, do we have another question now? I'm giving fairly short answers. Um as best as I can. How about over here? Oh, come on. Perry. It's on the tip of your tongue. Come on. What's the question? No? Come on. At the back. Josh. Some people don't believe in the three divisions of the law Moral. Hold on, number seven on my list. How can we tell which Old Testament laws are still valid for today? That's kind of in the neighborhood of what you're asking. By studying the Bible and comparing different parts of Scripture with Scripture, what emerges is in the Old Testament there were three main kinds of laws. Some are called statutes or precepts, but those terms are somewhat fluid. Let's just call them laws. Some of them are obviously moral laws. And you say, by its very nature, that wasn't just for Israel. Thou shalt not murder. That's that's not saying it's okay for Gentiles to kill, but not for Jews. It's a moral law that emerges from its very nature. But then there are some other ones that are very obviously only for the Jews in the Old Testament. For example, the command to have animal sacrifices. uh, Circumcision for baby boys. uh, The special holy days like Passover. Uh, It says in Colossians 2 and other places, those laws were just for the Jews until the Messiah came. Jesus is the Messiah, he's come, so the Bible says those laws are no longer important. They never were binding on Gentiles, even in the Old Testament, but it's not even binding on Jews today. Actually, some of the ancient Jewish rabbis after the New Testament said some of those laws were only good until Messiah comes sadly most jews don't believe messiah has come but he has come so that's the second division that emerges when you look at those laws and say well that's obviously just for the jews back then and they're no longer valid because what well, says christ is our passover we don't have to do animal sacrifices the third one is a little bit more tricky the division called the judicial laws or the civil laws um For example, uh, what's called penology, how do you punish criminals? Well, uh, you find uh, the death penalty, and it gives several cases in the Old Testament. Was that only for Israel? No, you find that in the New Testament as well. Would you know where? Acts 26, when Paul was on trial, he said, if I've done anything worthy of death, I don't Resist dying. So he said, I'll die if I'm guilty of a capital crime. And there's a few other places. Romans 1, those who do such things are worthy of death. So some judicial laws are tied in with the moral laws. Those would still be valid. Other ones are tied in with the um, ceremonial laws only for the Jews. So those judicial laws don't apply because we're not a theocracy. It's not always easy to tell How much continues? Here's one way that many uh, great theologians have answered it. If a law from the Old Testament has been repeated in the New, obviously it's still for us today. Unless it was like part of the, the rabbis in the temple when Jesus was on earth and the Old Covenant had not yet been done away with. So if it's been repeated, like, okay, I got a question. What is the greatest law of all? Someone shout it out. Love the, Lord your God. love the Lord your God. Is that just for the Jews in the Old Testament it has been abolished? No, Jesus said it's still valid. And the second law is love your neighbor as yourself. So you see, that's an Old Testament law that Jesus put a stamp for approval for us today. Uh, so if it's been repeated, okay. Other ones will say, and by the way, you can say if it's been repeated, but what about the ones that are not repeated? That's where it gets a little tricky, right, Vic? Because you say, well, if it's not repeated, does that mean it's okay for us to do it? No, there are certain moral laws that are not repeated. You can obviously say, well, obviously that's still valid for today. Now, the other way some people look at it is to say, all the Old Testament laws have been done away with. Because they say, well, what about animal sacrifices and other ones? But what about other ones that are repeated? If it's been abolished, how can it be repeated? So they say, the two positions, to summarize it, are this. Uh, You assume something is still valid unless you see it's been abolished. Or this other position says you can assume it's been abolished unless it's been repeated. But there's a little overlap, and there are a lot of difficult times to say, is this law, is this moral, or is this just for the Jews? Some of those are a little bit hard to pinpoint. Well, that's how I would answer it. Good enough? That should get you thinking. Who's next? Logan. If I go again. <laughs> yeah. What is revival and are there any biblical examples? The word revival is found. Revive us again. Um, I did a study on this just a few months ago for the Preacher's Fellowship. It does mention revival. Uh, the word literally means to come back to life, like resurrection, to revive. And so uh, historically we've said the word revival means when God looks upon his people and they're just about to go wander and he revives them. He gives them seasons of refreshing and spiritual growth and they sense his nearness. And uh, it's not, it starts with God's people, but many unbelievers get saved. And so in history, we'd see the Great Awakening 300 years ago, the Evangelical Awakening, the Welsh Revival about the year 1900, and you look at that and say, man, the way they described it sounds like in the Bible where they just revived and Christians were greatly encouraged and a lot of Christians got saved, and they say they sensed the presence of God more than usual. That's a brief summary of what I think the Bible would teach, and we find examples For example, during the times of Hezekiah and Josiah, right before that, Israel was in terrible condition with idolatry and immorality. But God used those two kings to bring in a kind of revival. They threw out idolatry and people were going to the temple and they were going back to God. How many were truly saved is another question. But you look at that and say, that is extraordinary that God did. Okay, who's next? Okay, over here. What are appropriate leadership roles in the church for women? What are appropriate leadership roles for women in the church? We have a handout out there on that specific point. First, every Christian has been gifted to serve in the body of Christ. That would mean in the local church. But everybody can't serve in the same roles, uh, I'm not especially gifted for teaching little children Sunday school. I had to do that many years ago. It was not the easiest thing. So I know some of my limitations. God has something for women to do, but not being elders or pastors. Because it explicitly says so in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I do not allow a woman to, ha- to teach or have authority over men. And That wasn't just for that one place. That would apply to everyone. God has said men only. We find that examples. All the apostles were just men. Jesus was a man. Women have other places where they are gifted beyond men, such as the gift of mercy. Women have a larger heart to show mercy for those that are hurting. They're the ones that immediately want to go visit the sick in the hospital, want to bring food to a grieving widow, things like that. Believe me, that is an important gift, usually given to women. Another thing, Titus 2.4 says, I would that the older women teach the younger women. They can teach, but not in the context of being in the pulpit or teaching at a seminary. Older women can teach younger women. Teach them Bible studies. Teach them how to be a good wife and mother if they are a brand new Christian and don't know how to do that. Does that kind of help answer the question? Okay. Did I see a hand over here? Did you think of your question yet, Perry? Okay. <laughs> You're, you're standing by. You're warming up in the bullpen. Okay, what do we have? What does Jesus mean when he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place after talking about the communism? Okay, that's Matthew 24. The question is, what did Jesus mean when he said, This generation will not pass away until all these things come to pass? You have to look at it context. Now, are you reading from Matthew or from Mark? Yeah. Matthew. Matthew 24. They had just left um, his rebuke of the Pharisees and said, you know, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Your house, the temple, is being left desolate. And he goes out with the apostles. And they look at the beautiful stonework of the temple. It was gorgeous, polished, you know, ivory and all this other stuff they said look at this beautiful temple you've just said God's deserting it and Jesus said I tell you none of these stones are going to be remaining they're going to be torn down one day and then he also talked about his second coming and they were trying to figure this out so they said when is this going to happen in their mind they were thinking when Jesus comes back again he's going to tear down the temple But you find out he's answering it in two stages. He says, this temple is going to be torn down within one generation. How long is a generation in the Bible? Do you remember? Nope. Forty. That's right. Sounds like an auction here. Okay. Forty years. That's how long the Jews were out in the wilderness. And there are other times of 40 years this, 40 years that. Uh, That's like the time period between grandpa and his son and then grandson. That would be like one generation. So Jesus said that approximately in the year uh, 30 to 31, thereabouts. You do the math, 70 AD. What's special about 70 AD? Do you remember? I mean, you weren't there, but you know. That's when the temple was torn down. The Romans came in, um, and they surrounded Jerusalem. They said, come out with your hands up, or we're going to make you slaves and kill the rest. They didn't surrender, so... They tore down the temple, the walls, within that time period. Interesting. When they came, they stopped. And in that discourse, Jesus said, He said, When you see the city surrounded, you find this in Luke's account, when you see the city surrounded, get out. And when that happened, the Christians remembered that and they got out. Went out in the desert, not a single Christian died. And then the general said, okay, let's go in. And it, uh, like a million Jews were killed, another million were made slaves. And the temple was torn down, just as Jesus said, within one generation. But what about the second coming? That hasn't happened yet. That's the second question. And he goes on to say, nobody will know the day or the hour. There will be only general signs, but not a specific timeline. Does that help? Okay. You got the question yet, Barry? Okay, who's next? Olivia, you got one? Not yet. I'll try to repeat the question for the listeners. How can we know what the Bible says about certain issues where Christians differ? Now, these are Christians that believe the Bible. Because there are people that say they're Christians that don't really believe the Bible. We can pretty much ignore them. But there are issues where godly Christians disagree. Preachers, theologians, just every Christian... You mentioned a couple. There's some churches that say when women come to church, they need to wear a veil or a hat. And I've been to churches like that. Um, Other ones will say women can be pastors and other ones say not. Uh, As you know, some churches say we only baptize believers. But some churches say we can baptize the babies of believers. Uh, Sometimes you wonder, well, which is correct? I think that's what you're asking. You know, you'd think God would give us a book that would give us the answer. So you go to the Bible. But how do you find out what the Bible says about that question? In the meantime, like, whenever you're thinking about and trying to send people both views to figure out which one is the most biblical, Hmm. and that the Lord is convicting you about what you do in the meantime. You go to the Bible verses that most directly address that question, and then you compare other verses as well, not just one. For example, let's take the question of divorce. There are Christians that say God allows no divorce. Let's, let's say what the Catholic Church teaches, Bill or Charles Ryrie, and others. No exceptions. Then there are other ones that say, but wait, I think the Bible says there are two grounds for legitimate divorce. Adultery and desertion if the non-Christian deserts the Christian. And yet they are good people on both sides. You go to Bible verses. For example, on that, on the one side, there are those that say, well, it says in the book of Malachi, God says, I hate divorce. Therefore, he doesn't allow any. What about those places, two of them, let's see, Matthew 6 and Matthew 19, where Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Notice, except for that. There are exceptions, so God doesn't forbid all divorce. 1 Corinthians 7 is the one that says if the uh, unbelieving spouse deserts and divorces the Christian, let the person go. That would be a legitimate ground. So you see, there are some that just concentrate on one verse. You need to keep looking at other ones. Um, Was there another case you had on that? You have to know more about the Bible, so uh, phone up Vic Edwards and say, what does the Bible say about this, or me, or, "Hmm?" and if I I know the answer, I'll tell you, if I don't know the answer, I'll make up an answer. No, I won't, because occasionally people ask me a question, I say, I'm not sure, I'll get back to you on that, but the basic principle is where to search in the Bible for the verses that would probably give you the answer straightforward. For example, that one that says, well, women can serve as pastors. Why not? We're all equal. We're all believers. But then they forget that verse that says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. A pastor has the authority in a church. So they overlook that or they misinterpret and say, well, that was then, not today. So start with the verses that most clearly come close to the question. And then secondly other verses. Usually you can come to the answer like that and say well okay I'll hit hit another one. I mentioned the question of infant baptism or believer's baptism. The main answer, the main question some people say is well in the Old Testament they circumcised the baby boys so it's not just for the adults but the babies. Look in the New Testament you say there are no commands or examples of infant baptism. Not a single one. And I counted up 21 places where the Bible mentions baptism, and every one it has to do with faith and repentance. So, and none about, well, it's the same thing as circumcision, so do it for the boys. You compare scripture with scripture, and that emerges. Okay, who's next? Over here, Rose. Yes. When well, we're talking uh to someone and and we've talked to them several times, at what point then do we try to say it's up to you, Lord? Or do we is it our man to just keep at it? Someone asked me a similar question this last week. The question is when we all Christians need to tell people the gospel, when do we know to stop or just keep going? Jesus said something that I think applies. He said, cast not your pearls before a swine or give that which is holy to the dogs lest they turn on you. As long as you have the green light and they're interested, keep talking. But when they say stop and they turn on you and you say, well, if you ever want to talk about it again, let me know, you back off. And I've applied that to friends and relatives that after a while they say, I'm not interested and they start yelling or something like that. It's like an angry dog. You, you back off and you do it politely and say, well, if you ever change your mind, let me know, or go find a Bible and start reading it. It takes wisdom to know when. The other problem Christians face is that they don't want to go and talk to somebody. They make all sorts of excuses, so they should. Another thing is, um, parallel to that is, how long should we keep praying for someone to get saved um, and should we stop? It depends upon the person. If it's a close relative or a close friend, I'd say keep on praying until what happens? Until that person gets saved or that person dies or until you die. I've been praying for my lost brother for 51 years. He's still not saved. I'm going to keep praying for him until he dies or I die or until he gets saved. Other people, however, think if you witness witnessed thousands of people Kind of hard to keep praying for every single one of them. But sometimes God puts someone on your heart to just keep praying for. I hope that helps. But I like what you said. Men and women are supposed to spread the gospel. Not just the pastors, not just the deacons, And not just the missionaries, too. Okay, up here. Ezekiel 33. Very serious. And I preached on this, what, about three years ago. How does that relate to the election? Good question. The question is, does the Bible say that if we have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone and we don't and that person dies, we share some punishment for not wanting them when we could? Ezekiel 33 is addressed to Ezekiel and God says, I've made you a watchman on the wall like you're the night guard. And if you see the enemies attacking the city, blow the trumpet and the soldiers will come and defend the city. Ah, but if you don't warn the city and those enemies come and break through, um, I'm holding you accountable. You did not warn them when you could. Then he says, now if you warn them and the people don't listen to you, at least you've done your duty to warn them. But the serious thing is, what if you don't warn them? Now let's apply that to evangelism. If we have an opportunity over a period of time to share the gospel with someone, excuse me, excuse me, let's say a close relative, and you're too scared or you make excuses for a long period of time, even when you have a golden opportunity, and you don't, you could have sent them a booklet at Christmas. You could have said, can we talk, do you have any questions about God? You have the opportunity. Remember, the watchman on the wall has the opportunity. And if we don't, and that person dies lost, we're setting ourselves up for divine chastening. Because it says, he will die lost, blood's upon his head, but his blood's on your hands. That is strong stuff. And I remember once, there was someone that I knew We're good friends. And over a period of time, it's like my conscience was saying, Kurt, you've never told him about Jesus. Talk to him. He's obviously not a Christian. Go ahead. And I I had some great opportunities, and I didn't. And the man died. When I found out, I went home and cried. And I said, Lord, I'm guilty. I've got his blood on my Yes, he was a sinner. He's accountable. But Lord, forgive me. I did not seize the opportunity. Now, the next part of your question was, well, how does that jive with election well there's a mystery there because it says he dies in his sins we are morally accountable even though god is sovereign and god has chosen who will be saved thing is we don't know who those elect are so we're to tell everybody especially some that we have the good opportunity to does that help okay who's next at the back Nikki. Yes. What will be the judgment of the righteous mean at Judgment Day? It's not that the possibility that a Christian could show up and fail and end up in hell. No, because the Bible does teach, if you're truly saved, you will always be saved. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. John ten twenty eight. So what's the purpose? There are those that say, Christians don't appear at the Judgment Day. It's only for non-Christians. Well, the Bible does talk about non-Christians there, and it's too late for them. The moment they die, there's no more second chance, and the Bible says that the lost at Judgment Day will end up going straight to hell. But there are also Bible verses that talk about Christians being judged, but judged does not necessarily mean condemnation. Just read the newspaper and see, someone goes on trial. And sometimes they're found innocent and let go. Other ones are found guilty. So what's the purpose of Christians appearing there? For several reasons. One is to be rewarded. The Bible talks about rewards. Not that we earn salvation, but as we follow Christ. And kind of like, what's the phrase? Help me, Vic. Going above and beyond the call of duty. And they give that guy the Medal of Honor or something. And so Christians... Sometimes will accumulate extra rewards, not to earn salvation, but because they've been saved, and they do things. By the way, let me say this: it's not necessarily for the people you think. You think, oh, the great evangelists and the missionaries, they'll be rewarded. But sometimes the great rewards go to people that are in the shadows, regularly serving God and His people, and they're kind of anonymous but they're accumulating a lot of rewards. Another purpose of the Christians being there is they will be publicly vindicated before the devil and before the non-Christians that made fun of them. God will say, these were my people after all. You know what's the ultimate purpose of Judgment Day? It's not just the punishment of the lost and the vindication and reward of the righteous. Anyone Anybody know? Yes, The Vindication of God. There have been great books written with that very title, The Vindication of God. It's called um, the, the, the Justice of God. Um, John Piper wrote a book on that with that title, The Justification of God. Because there are people today that say, there is no God. Well, God's going to say, yes, I am here. By the way, I've been reading Ezekiel in my devotions, including chapter 33, just to, this week. And there's a recurring phrase that I preached on a couple of years ago. It's found like 63 times where God says something by way of threat or promise. And he says, and then you will know I am the Lord your God. Then you will know it. That's going to happen at judgment day. Those that died as atheists and unbelievers that wouldn't repent. Then at judgment day, they will know that there really was a God. What about Christians? Sometimes we have doubts. We won't have doubts when we appear at the judgment day. Well, wait, anyway, wait, there's different ways of answering the question. Hope it helps. Who's next? Or do I resort to my list? At the back. See if I can get the stay of your question to repeat it. Um, If you've fallen out with someone, how do you maintain the peace? Something like that? Well, I'd say if somebody in your family really hurts somebody else in the family, how do you not be bitter towards that person? We have to look out for bitterness. The Bible says, beware a root of bitterness. That doesn't mean we can't have righteous indignation and say, that was wrong. Well, I think the first step is to pray about it. Second step, go and talk to that person. Say, you know, I think you were really out of line the way you treated that person. You know, you insulted her or you brought that woman to tears or you were really mean. And things like this do happen in families. But I think your question is, what if you're not the one involved, but you're in the family? Uh, How do you go and talk to that person? For example, what if you try and they say, none of your business, but out. This is between me and him or her. You could say, it is my business. I'm a member of this family. And I think that you are out of line. And they say, no, I wasn't. Well, say, well, then let's look at this situation from God's point of view. God says you shouldn't you know, hurt a person and things like that. So you want to see what Bible verses apply. Can you think of any principles that would apply? How about that one in Matthew? It says if you go into the temple to make a sacrifice and you remember your brother has something against you. You've sinned and he's feeling bad about it or he's sinned and you feel bad about it. Christ said, and this is in Matthew, leave your sacrifice and go be reconciled to him. Then you look at another verse where Matthew 18, you go to someone and point out the fault where they don't listen to you. They say, hit the road. I'm not apologizing. Then it says, take two more people with you. And sometimes at that stage, a person will say, well, you know, you got me outnumbered. And yes, you know, I can lie to you, but not to these others. And then, now, if it's a Christian, you could go to the third stage and say, let's go to the church elders. And this person might be subject to church discipline. Also, it matters that we're talking about a Christian or a non-Christian. Christian is to be held to a higher standard. And I could mean church discipline if it's a serious sin, like a man beating up his wife or something like that. Uh, but if it's something le- less, then you say, well, let's, let's talk about it. And, I, and you can say, you need to apologize if you've sinned against me. I am willing to forgive you. You know, that's a big problem for some people. They've been hurt and they don't want to forgive. So what's harder, to apologize or to forgive? They're both hard. But they're both not impossible. Hope that helps. Who's next? Got your question yet over here, ladies? Okay, Matt. Um, what are we supposed to learn from in the creation of God where it says God rested? What, you remember where it said that? It, yeah. Genesis 2.1, he had created the world in how many days? Six, and I believe those were six 24-hour periods because it talks about uh, sundown and sunset and that's how Jews... Keep track of time. And the word there, yom in Hebrew, almost always means 24-hour time. Maybe 5% of the time it means something else. So it says God rested from all his work. It doesn't mean he was tired, because God never gets tired. doesn't have to sleep. He has all power. What it meant is he stopped creating. Jesus referred to that, I think it's John 5 could be seven, where he said, my father works and so do I. He said, wait, 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 he stopped working. No, God stopped creating and he started providence, working within his creation. For example, first he created Adam and then he created Eve out of Adam. And then out of Adam and Eve, the children and grandchildren and so forth, the work of creation stopped, but the work of providence continued. And, as it says there, you know, he rested on that day. And I think that the one day and seven Sabbath principle was a creation ordinance. Not just for the Jews, but in the New Testament. It's called the Lord's Day, Revelation chapter 1. They met on the first day of the week, says in the book of Acts, and, uh, 1 Corinthians 16. So I think that was given this the example to rest and to worship. Anita, do you have a question? Or maybe on behalf of Todd. Okay, we're not finished yet. Got I'll give you two interesting ones. At Bible college, there's a guy, he kept asking this. It's like a splinter he couldn't take out of his hand. He says, why did Jesus say, remember Lot's wife? What's Lot's wife got to do with it? You remember Lot was uh, related to Abraham. They'd gone to the promised land and uh, they split the land. You go here and I'll go over there. You take your sheep and cattle there because our people were fighting. Okay, and Lot goes to an area that was very, very sinful, Sodom and Gomorrah. And God saw how wicked it was. And Lot's called righteous Lot. And so God sent angels and said, Lot, get your wife, that's Lot's wife, and your family, two daughters and their husbands, and get out because I'm going to destroy this city with fire and brimstone like an upside-down volcano. Get out. They also said, get out and don't look back. Well, they left. By the way, the, he and his wife and the daughters left. Very interesting detail. The sons-in-law did not. I'm going to preach on this. Jonathan Edwards preached on that one verse where it says, they thought Lot was joking, and they laughed. Tell us another one, Lot fire from heaven. Oh, they probably bellowed over with horse laughs until the fire came. Okay, so Lot, his wife, two daughters left. They left physically, but Lot's heart Lot's wife's heart was still back there and she got out of town and looked back with longing to go back because. Yes, it was sinful and decadent, but they were very wealthy. She wanted to go back, and what happened? God punished her. strange miracle turned her into a big pillar made of salt. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Remember Lot's wife. What does that apply to us today? There are those that live a very wicked life, like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and then they clean up their life for a while. They leave. But then they go back because their heart's still back and they read 2 Peter chapter 2. It says, some people clean up outwardly, but inwardly they're still the same and they will eventually go back worse than ever. And it says, in very earthy illustrations, it says, it's like the hog that's been washed and now it goes back to wallow in the filth. And it's like a dog that is vomited and goes and, you ever see a dog lick up its vomit? It's filthy. They were still hogs and dogs. Some people, they go back to something that is terrible, like Lot's wife. But in Lot's wife's case, God stopped her and punished her. That's what Jesus meant, remember Lot's wife. Okay, who's next? Sarah, you got one? How about the girls? No. Anna. Don't wanna leave anybody out. Got a question? One of my Sunday school classes asked if Achan went to heaven or hell. Did Achan go to heaven or hell? Now Achan was the one that let's see, during the days of Joshua, and they were told, go and defeat the Canaanites because they're not only worshiping the devil, but they're having human sacrifices and extreme immorality, and God says, go and don't spare them. And don't even take their belongings. And Am I right? And Hichan he stole that little piece of gold that was shaped like a doorstop, a little wedge of gold. That's kind of like a gold bouillon bar. And he hid it. And then God punished Israel. And so Lot cast lots, not Lot, uh, Joshua cast lots, and it said, "Okay, the, the guilty person's from Judah and from this tribe and from this this family." And Hichan said, "I give up. I'm the guilty one." And he was put to death because he had brought this curse upon Israel. I think your question is, was he a saved man or not? I don't know. Probably not. But the Bible doesn't specifically say. Here's another one. It's on my list. Where is it? Number 15, was Saul a saved man? Saul was the first king and handpicked by God reluctantly because remember the Jews said, we want a king to be like the other nations. And God said, I'm your king. And they've rejected me from ruling over you. And so God reluctantly gave them a king and said, you'll be sorry. He's going to be a failure. And that's just what Saul was. You know, he kept making mistake after mistake. He, he was confronted by Samuel. And he died in disgrace. And his body was dismembered by the Philistines. But right before that... Um, He was so terrified and worried, he went and sought out a medium to call up someone from the dead to give him advice. It was Samuel. And God had said, don't call upon dead people. It's strictly forbidden. Deuteronomy 18. So the question is, was Saul a saved man because he died? I think that he was not a saved man, but some good people will say he was. But the next question, was that really Samuel that came up? Well, it could have been as an exception, but that's not an example for us to go to mediums or seances and call upon ghosts or, you know, your dead Uncle Joe or someone like that. No, no, that's, that's occultism. That's going to be happening in a few weeks at Halloween. Kids, go, kids don't ever go to a Halloween party where they try to call up the dead and do Ouija board seances. It is evil because you're being put in touch with evil forces. Bible calls demons. Pastor, yes. wasn't there a place when the Spirit left Sarah? Hmm. And if that is true, does that mean that he could, you can't lose your. can't lose it. Sometimes God gave a, um, an endowment of the Spirit short of salvation. Balaam, the false prophet, he prophesied and said some things that God told him to say. The Bible clearly says he was not a righteous man, so that was like a temporary endowment. It's probably like that with Saul. That God, By the way, God does give a certain gift to those in places in authority. But if they misuse it, they're not much different than Saul. Who's next? Vic, you got anything? My question was already answered, and I, I, I really appreciate it. It was the question about at, at the judgment. Are our, 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 our sins reviewed, and especially, if this is asked of me on Quora, especially the unrepentant sins of a, of a Christian? Well, well, I'll build on that. Um, Christians should confess their sins, but Christians sometimes sin and die in the course of sinning, maybe temporary backsliding. Is that going to annul their salvation? No. Because God's forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. And here's the way I like to put it. At Judgment Day, it says the books will be opened. That means God's record of all of our sins. And I've had Christians say, I'm terrified because certain sins are going to come back to haunt me and maybe condemn me. Could God have. God's already forgiven. So I put it like this it's like the Judgment Day. And God says, read out the record of. Susan Jones. Susan's over there trembling. And Angel said, Jones, Susan, I'm sorry, Lord, they've all been deleted. All the pages, oh, the pages aren't empty. Her sins have been deleted. And on every page, it writes down the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. And when you think about that, that's a precious thought. Our sins won't haunt us or condemn us. They've been forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus. Who's next? We still... Oh, we've got about maybe three minutes. Okay. Has a she says, why would Jesus still love us even though we've Say it again. She, she's asking, why would Jesus still love us even though we've sinned against him? That's a good question. Why would Jesus still love us even though we've sinned against him? He loves the angels that never sinned. He loves us more than the angels. Getting back to Micah's question, that's one reason God allowed sin in the world to say, I'm going to show you what real love is like. I'm not just loving the holy angels. I'm loving sinners. That's amazing grace. Does that ever grab your heart and say, He loves you. And it says, not only did He love you when you were a sinner, Christ died for you when you were a sinner. Do you know where it says that? Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for the angels, he died for us. That shows how God really does love us. God is love. Is that a good enough answer? Okay. Time for one more. And I got an interesting one if you don't have one. Uh, I knew a guy, and we'd occasionally. You know, sit around and drink coffee or something. And I was a Christian; he wasn't, and he kept throwing objections and trick questions. He was one that he threw to me half a dozen times. It's like that one remember Lot's wife. This guy said, "It says in the Gospel of Matthew that when Jesus was going into Jerusalem, he saw a fig tree without figs, and he cursed it, and it died. Why did he curse that little fig tree? It wasn't doing anything wrong. You're just a tree." He couldn't get away from that. I remember saying, you're not worried about that silly fig tree, it's Jesus. And I said, Jesus has the authority, after all, all the trees belong to him. But it was a symbolic action. Like when Jesus healed a blind person, that's symbolizing he can heal spiritual blindness. Raise Lazarus from the dead. That's a symbol that he raises dead sinners spiritually. So what's the lesson about that fig tree? The fig tree was a symbol of Israel. And it says it was the time of the season. There should have been at least some figs on that fig tree and there weren't. Jesus came to Israel, did so much for them. Where was the fruit? Most Jews did not accept them. And so, again, the context, this is right in that context of Matthew 24 and 23. It's actually the chapter before about the fig tree. He said, May no fruit come from you again in the fig tree withered. And then later, when they were leaving Jerusalem, they see that tree. One of the apostles said, Hey, Master, it it's, it's now has a few figs. What's going on? Jesus, as it were, pronounced a punishment upon Israel because they had rejected him. But in Matthew 24, look it up. It says later, the fig tree will have an abundance of figs and other trees. That hadn't happened yet. One day, God's going to send a great revival to Jewish people around the world, and so many will become Christians. It's like a dead tree coming to life with fruit everywhere. The fig tree will once, so it's a temporary punishment. Does that make sense to everybody? I explained it to that friend of mine, he still didn't get it. And I said, Your problem isn't with that. It's like the question, where did, Cain, where did Cain get his wife? Matt, you know, who was Cain's wife? Mrs. Cain. Yeah. I heard one preacher say, Why are you worried about his wife? How about your wife? You know, are you trying to hide something? Well, do we have any last questions from anybody? Okay, were Adam and Eve repentant and did they get saved? It doesn't explicitly say, but most Bible-believing preachers and scholars will say they they were, or at least probably were, because it doesn't say enough. But you turn around and say, if they didn't, I think God would have given us a clue that they didn't, like Cain, their son that killed his brother Abel, it gives clues that he didn't repent of this, and then his son Nimrod and these other ones But it's probably that when they were put out of the Garden of Eden, they were repentant. You know what the big clue is? They tried to cover up their sin with fig leaves, and God said, get rid of those fig leaves. And God covered them up. And I think that was a symbol that God forgave their sin and covered it up with those animal skins, which was a picture of Christ's righteousness. So I think Adam and Eve did repent and were saved. What do you want to ask them when you meet Adam and Eve in heaven, Rose? a good question. It's a very good question. How about this? I'm just yeah. Eve, why'd you do it, woman? And you know what she'll say? You would have done it too if the devil had tempted you. So don't just blame her. And imagine, Adam, what was it like to be the first man? What was it like before Eve came? What was it, I'll ask both of them, what was it like in the garden before you sinned? And they'd say it was wonderful. By the way, This is a little dessert. Revelation describes ultimate heaven like paradise restored. It will be better in heaven than the Garden of Eden before they sinned. Because Jesus is called the second Adam who's greater than the first. He will bring in something far greater than what the Garden of Eden was before the fall. Well, maybe we'll do this again sometime. What do you all think? Okay. Okay. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you that your book is your holy book. It answers these and many other questions. Help us to study it and ask questions. We ask that you would give us the answers. In Jesus' name, amen.